You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. Our guest today is Ustad Shokat Aksi. Shokat has been serving the Glasgow community for several decades, whether it is through youth and prison work, serving as a chaplain at Glasgow University, or helping people through the most difficult of times. Many will know Shokat through his weekly radio show, but Shokat has also been instrumental in supporting the growth of Al-Mizan and has a real passion for outreach work with prisons and young offenders. Shokat studied Arabic and Islamic studies in Medina and then studied Islamic law for four years at the European Institute of Human Sciences in France. He was also the honorary Muslim chaplain for the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow 2014. So Ustad Shokat, welcome and assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa So now Shokat, we've known each other for decades and I (laughs) first got to know you um, via the young Muslims. That's right. And youth work is something you've been so passionate about over the years. Mm -hmm. And you've got a natural ability with the youth. What do you think is the key to engaging with young people? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, as, you, as you said, Rahim. as you said, it's kind of having that experience and that ability to speak to young people because obviously growing up, we've, we, we know the challenges that the, our parents had or that elder generation had in terms of communicating with us. You know, we had challenges, you know, because obviously we were of a generation where we were brought up here. Um, and the way that we spoke and communicated was very different from how our parents did that. But however, now we're in a we, we're fortunate in that generation where, being second generation, that we're able to we've grown up here, we've been through the system, we've been to school here, we've been through, you know, university or college or whatever it may be. So we can relate a lot more to young people, and I think that's what the biggest thing is: is that it is it, to relate to young people because sometimes when we talk to young people and you see this a lot unfortunately is that we speak over them expecting them to understand what we're trying to say whereas you know one of the things the prophet peace upon him used to say as well and um you know one of the things that you know it's important is about speak to people at their level um so be that a youth or be that an elderly gentleman whoever it is you know the way if you look at the way the prophet communicated with the people was in a way that it was apt it was appropriate it was the right level the right um, choice of words those kind of things so uh, for me I think that's really really important and again I think I've kind of had that over time over experience and plus I've got a daughter who's 16 years old as well so <laughs> but do you think, I know it's, you know you've got an idea but this ability to connect to young people mm-hmm. and even from what you've said is that something that just came naturally to you or is this something you've worked I on think, over the I years think, I think probably somewhat in a way naturally as well um because I've kind of a lot of time been around a lot of young people um, as you kind of mentioned involved in activities still to this day you know even although being I won't say my age but mid 40s almost but uh, being at that age I'm still connect, connected with a lot of young people so with that connection you still get an idea of what's going on and what you know what the things they really like or what do they like to talk about um, or how to able to engage with young people what, what interests them you know in terms of what is the thing that they really want to talk about because again a lot of times we want to talk about what we think is right for them but we don't you know it's really I find that what do they think is right or what do they think is appropriate now when we spoke recently um mm-hmm. 
You mentioned that the, your work with young offenders yeah. uh, coming into and out of prison was something that was qu- you're quite passionate mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain a bit about what sort of work you did and what some of the challenges these brothers and sisters have? <coughs> well, the, the 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 prison work it was uh, technically the official term was through care officer, which basically means engaging with young people. Um, who are are about to come back into the community, they're on release basically quite soon. And that was mainly young people in um, uh, Polmont Young Offenders um, in near Falkirk, and I was engaging with the BME young people. So it wasn't a faith-based, a lot of things people obviously, th- from a background, think I'm going in as a chaplain, I wasn't going in as a chaplain. But nevertheless, obviously, being from the ethnic minority, you can imagine the majority of young people that engaged with were young Pakistani Muslim you know, third, fourth generation young men. So that, um, so naturally there was times where you would speak about faith and stuff like that as well. But the majority of the time it was a case of whereby getting them into programmes into prison because one of the things at the time before I went in was that although prison is prison, and I know it's not the best place, but nor is it the worst place in the world to be either um, in the sense that, you know, they weren't engaging with services within the prison. So one of the things about young offenders prisoners, prisons, is it really focused on education? But our young people were in their cells most of the day, sleeping through, not bothering going to any classes or engaging with any clubs or anything like that at all. There was lots of opportunities, and that was one of the things that I tried to do is encourage them to get involved in something. For whatever period and length of time they were there for, you'd be that six months or a year or two years, you know, at least something, get yourself involved into something. But again, obviously through this is, is you've got to understand the impact it has on families. That was one of the, the big factors of the job as well, where, uh, you know, ha- you had to go speak to mums and dads. And that was a real eye-opener for me, I think. And that's where, you know, I really, you know, I gained a lot of experience in how to engage with a lot of young people and find that balance when speaking to parents as well, because prison just doesn't affect the young person. You can imagine the effect it has on a family member as well, particularly mum and dad. Um, so that was quite a challenge in the job. And did you identify any particular patterns in terms of the BME prisoners that you saw? Was there some <coughs> things that you could identify why they ended up, I guess, in prison? Or, you know, I guess it's, um, you know, identifying so we, some of the we, issues. We, yeah. we covered three programmes when we were in Pullman. Um One of them was in personal um, um, personal development. The other one was on leadership. And, and the third one was on, like, community engagement and involvement. And these are the three areas where we feel that young people lacked in, and that's where hence the programmes were designed around that. So hopefully when they do come back out, they have a different perspective on how to kind of get involved in community work or involved in some way, some some opportunity that might arise, be that going back to college or getting into employment or an apprenticeship or trainership, whatever it may be. So giving them that kind of alternative understanding of what's out there and how to look at things. Because when they come in, obviously they come in from 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 a particular, not generalised, that would be the wrong thing to do. But you know, a particular mode and a particular understanding that you know everyone's against us and we are this and you know all these kind of things that we'll never get anywhere in life. But really, you will get somewhere if you put put a little bit of effort in. So it's breaking down some of those barriers because one of the things is you you know yourself, a man that. You know, prison does affect people mentally as well. There's a lot of mental health issues within prison. And also at the same time as well, when someone's come out of prison, try to get into employment because they've got that record now that shows that they've been to prison is another obstacle. So, you know, there's lots of different factors that you've got to kind of look into and consider in regards to um, getting young people back onto um, some opportunity. And, and considering some of the Muslim prisoners that you dealt with, mm-hmm. 
did some of them have a real feeling that society has almost cut them off or ostracized them in, in the sense of when I go back into the community, basically nobody is there for me. I'm going to be a, quite alone and ev- the, the whole stigma of yeah, I mean, that, my, that's, that's And that's not just within the BME community. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all communities. You know, a lot of people come out of prison, that experience of prison coming out and something happening um, where... Um, you know, they, they feel that, you know, as I said, they've not got that opportunity or family's going to be an issue or, you know, how they're going to get back into the, 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 the social circles, for example, that kind of thing. So all these things are challenges. And that's where, obviously, as I said, some of the programmes, like the personal development within that, is talking about relationships, particularly direct relationships between your parents, you know, your closer relationship with your family, your brothers and your sisters, and then as and, and as in your friends and family. Um, because one thing is that, and I always say, you know, young people, when they first come into prison, I go see them and you can see the, you know, the quiver in their teeth, in, your, in their lips, and they're almost like, you know, about to fall into tears. And I'm saying, look, I know what you're going through, it's very difficult. Um, um, but, you know, we're here for you to support you and things as well. And what I would say is that, you know, one of the things that you'll learn, and it's quite hard as well, is that you'll get to know who your f- real friends are and your real close colleagues are. Nine out of ten times, the same people that were involved in what criminal or what got you into prison are the probably the guys who will least most likely come and visit you. You know what I mean? You'll be surprised who comes and sees you, that sort of thing, yeah. So, Shoga, I'm going to cast you away on this yeah, desert okay. island. Yeah, okay, desert island, let's go. So, t- <laughs> tell us about the first item that you're going to take with you. The first item um, was is a book, believe it or not, yeah, I think, um, called Ahyalamuddin, which is the reviving of Islamic sciences. A book that um, I actually bought and read about half of it many, many, many years ago. I think I was, at the time I was... Um, I was uh, I was about seventeen eighteen, um, and I had it in in one of the university in Medina University where I was studying, and it wasn't the flavor of the month. Put it that way, Mum Ghazali's not very um, let's say the word who did this. He was not very you know credited in, in in that particular part of the world. Um, but however, alhamdulillah, you know I had the book and I, I enjoyed reading it. It was something that really opened me up in terms of understanding the deen in a very different perspective. And I didn't get to complete it. Um, so I've read, still reading bits and pieces of it. So it's something that I would take away and just read and just, you know, enjoy, I'm sure, no doubt. So I remember one of the sort of jaw-dropping times in my life many, many years ago. Okay. Is that we were with a group of people and um, you started speaking Arabic with them. Mm. And it was the first time I'd seen a Pakistani <laughs> Scot speaking Arabic. Right. And I think you were perhaps one of the first handful of Scottish Muslims born in this country mm-hmm. to go abroad to study Arabic and Islam in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. How did that all come about? Oh, where did I start? Um, I, I've always had a passion, a drive to learn Arabic because I was involved with a, a, a group, a circle at the time, that was based over in um, over in the Muslim house in the West End, for anyone who knows, in Queen's Crescent. And I must have been 12, 13 years old. Um, so from a very young age, I used to go there quite regularly. And that was like a, a set up by the Arab community in Glasgow at the time, and still is. And, you know, they would speak, and you'd be amazed at the language that they spoke and stuff like that, and how the, you know, they would understand the hadith and... Quran and things like that and from there I thought you know I've got to do this as well I've got to learn this and ever since then you know I've always had that drive and that want and that thing about desire about learning Arabic and um, at the time interestingly enough what also happened was that I had um, well my, my father decided to move to Pakistan we stayed in Glasgow f- uh, for a period of time and um, what happened is that we had a kind of fairly large house in the West End and um 
by chance, total by chance, was um, Dr. Farid Hashimi, you probably know from Pakistan, and her husband were doing a PhD at Glasgow University at the time. They were looking for a place to stay, and my mum offered them to come to stay with us. So from there, it all kind of, you know, snowballed in the sense that they came, um, and they started teaching me Quran, because I remember I went went to Quran, went once to the mosque to go to Quran, never went back. Not that should, people shouldn't go back, they should go. I went to an interview's house, got beaten up on the first day, so I didn't go back <laughs> there either. And my mum was like, what did I do you guys, myself and my younger brother? So, alhamdulillah, you know, I don't know, God sent, i got to say, they, they, they came and they so said, she, why she did we... She lived with you? She lived with us. How long was that for? That was four years, about this, three, three and a half, four years. She's the us. founder of Al-Hudan. She's founder of Al-Hudan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so she's, you know, it's just one of those things, I guess, I don't know. Um, and our husband, Dr. Idris, um, he, he, he was our teacher and uh, he taught us Quran. But the way he taught Quran was, you know, you read the hadith about how the Prophet when young people like Anas ibn Malik and uh, Abdullah ibn Masood, all these young people around the Prophet, they never saw the Prophet get angry. That was the same thing with uh, Dr. Idris. He never got, you know, we were, you know, at 12, 13, you mess about, you know yourself, oh, man. But never once did he raise his voice or shout for us or raise a hand and I thought, my God, this is good. Um, and what you do, instead of doing what you do, you start loving the teacher and you start loving what he teaches you and that really was a big impact in my life um, in more ways than one. And from there, it kind of developed in terms of, obviously, as I said, I had that drive for learning Arabic and various other things and he would, you know, get a verse translated and we'd sit there and get an understanding of it and it was fascinating. So how, how had your life, what was family life like before they had come? Before they so That was about the age of 12? So yeah, before yeah, that I mean, age before, the, before that, I mean, as I said, just a normal family. Um, my dad had a business, you know, mum was a housewife, my younger brother, my older two sisters were... Uh, one was at s- just finishing the secondary school, the other one was helping in the family business. It was, I was still at school, my younger brother was still at school, so that was it. Was just it a normal family, nothing at all. So quite a religious household with um, emphasis on Mum was religious, mum was very religious. She was, um, you know, in terms of obviously reminding us about our dean, reminding us about our prayers, reminding us about fasting, all these kind of things as well. So mum was the kind of, you know, the, the anchor in terms, of <clears throat> in terms of the dean. You know, alhamdulillah, so that, that we, you know, I was very blessed in that way, yeah. And you mentioned what your dad Yeah, my dad had this ambition, like a lot of people do, is that they, they, they want to go back to Pakistan at some point. And my dad decided to go at that particular point. When we, I remember I was just getting into, going into secondary school, just finishing primary school. Um, and what he didn't tell me, my sister decided to go as well. So it was, I was literally the oldest in the family at 12 years old. So it was my, myself, my younger brother, my mum, and that was it. You know, in this big house in the West End. Was they so, talk about you, the whole family moving, and you guys? Uh, at some point, my father said to set up the business, and then obviously a few years time we would move there. But I don't know. We never really had the thing about moving, but that was my father's sort of goal and ambition. So he did. In terms of business, he was hamdara quite successful here in Glasgow. So he obviously took a lot of money to Pakistan, set up a factory and a furniture factory and so forth. But obviously, it never came to fruition. We never decided to go there, and things just kind of. And you so know, this doctor, Idris, did almost, did, was he like a father figure than he became, your own dad having Yeah, I mean, I, more of a, actually, because I think more of a big brother sort of thing, um, rather than a father figure. Maybe a father figure in some ways as well, but I would say more of a big brother and a role model for us, I think. Um, because we didn't have any male role models around us at the time, 
Um, I think he became one of those people um, in terms of obviously having an impact on us directly because obviously he lived with us and everything else as well. And, and did you did you feel a sense of uh, being the man of the house and the responsibility? I for did. I, d- I did at twelve. I did believe it or not because I used to go out. I never paid a bill in my life before. You know yourself. You've never paid a, a bill. I didn't know where to go to pay a bill. You know, a, a gas bill, an electricity bill, and the, the well, it wasn't council tax at the time, it was just about to come the poll tax, but you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, it was like, okay, what do I do? Where do I go? Um, you know, where do I go to pay this? I didn't know. You went to a post office to pay it, or you had to go to the Scottish Power, uh, whatever head, you know, office or whatever, pay it there. So all these kind of little, I know it sounds very thingy, but for a 12 year old, it's a big thing, you know? Um, and obviously at the same time, it's all just making sure the house is okay. You know, my brother's all right, you know, that kind of thing. Just kind of keep an eye on things, really, to be honest. Um, but, you know, in some ways, you know, I think, I think you know, you mature up a bit, especially when you put into the deep end. I think it happens a lot. And that happened twice in my life, I think, at that time. And also when I moved away from home, I think that was another big one. So tell us about the next item you're going to take with you. The next item, actually, would be... I think I think some of the some of the things in terms of the Quran obviously impacted me in terms of some of the verses um, in the Quran undoubtedly are something that I would take away. Um, one of the verses, as we probably know about, um, that Allah, Allah mentions in the Quran that um, in the Dina in the Islam that indeed the religion with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is Islam, um, and I think that's a very important um, verse in the sense that Islam is you know and, and this is something I think. We need to be reminded of over and over again that Islam is not, it doesn't belong to anyone. It doesn't have ownership in the sense that it belongs to Allah alone. We're just simply followers of it. But I think nowadays we see a lot of people or some people or groups and organisations somehow think, you know, they've been given some right over it and some, I don't know, inheritance over it. The scholars have, no doubt about it. We know that from the hadith that the scholars are the inheritors of, 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 of the Prophet but other than that, I think sometimes we kind of forget that. And, you know, growing up, I've seen a lot of, you know, people get caught up in the whole thing of, you know, um, this is my group and this is my group. We're forgetting the bigger picture, you know, chunking up to the sense that Islam is not yours, it's not mine, it just doesn't sit under a flag of this organisation or that organisation. It's absolutely everybody. And that was the advice one of our teachers gave us as well about it, you know, in terms of, you know, don't, don't you, you don't own it. You know, you, you know, even although you might learn the knowledge and this, that and other, you don't own it. You know, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Allah and he's the one, again, that whole thing about Allah guides who he wants and misguides who he wants. It wasn't even in the hands of the Prophet Wasallam. If it was in the hands of the Prophet Wasallam, wouldn't his uncle Abu Talib be, you know, the believers, you know, but it's with Allah. Yeah. So you had this passion to learn Arabic. Mm. At, in f- the first place you went to was Medina. Yeah. So tell us a bit about, so you, you've been searching, you wanted to learn Arabic. Yeah. How did that offer come about? What age were you? What, what was happening <laughs> at the That offer came, it was very interesting, that offer, um, in that, again, Dr. Dr. Adis was, was, was just finishing um, his PhD, so he was leaving. Um, so obviously for me that would have been a big gap in our life, because obviously he'd been with us like for so many years. And he said, look, why don't you apply to Medina University? And I thought, okay. And at the time I remember there's a, there a Saudi brother in Masjid Furqan, his name was uh, Brother Salah, I even remember him. He used to drive a Cavalier, do you remember the Cavaliers? <laughs> a blue Cavalier, I used to remember his car as well because he used to make a funny noise when he used to drive. But anyway, um, he he had contacts at the university and he says, look, okay, I'll, I'll see what I can do. 
and I applied and gave my I didn't even fill a form, I'd give my name <laughs> and a number and address and that was it. That was you know, it wasn't any official form at the time. And he says, Okay, let me see what I can do and I just gave my name and number thinking nothing's gonna come at this. And at the time I was doing my hires obviously at school. Um and I was aiming to go to university, Glasgow you need to do an engineering course. I think I applied to chemical engineering and I got my grades, got in well got got my acceptance letter as well for chemical engineering at the time and then lo and behold the letter from Medina comes as well so I've got these two acceptance letters at 17 <laughs> what do I do so I'm going around battling my head thinking who do I ask so I asked some people and um, one of the other other people was quite uh, quite important to me at my young age was um brother Javed Javed Ali from Andalus we were very close still are very close you know and I used to seek a lot of advice from him at the time so I spoke to him um, I remember there was a scholar who came to Glasgow at the time, and uh, he's passed away, Rahimullah, Egyptian scholar. In fact, he was one of the one of the first people to join the Islamic Brotherhood in Egypt at the time as well. So quite an influential figure. So and he'd been the second time, so I kind of knew him from the first time because we, I spoke to him about it as well. And he says, "Look, you know, everyone gave me the advice go because at least try it for a year or two. Take it as a gap year. You can always come back to education in the UK. You can say that another. And I did. I wrote to the university and said, look, I'm taking a gap year. Is it okay? And they said, it's fine. <clears throat> you can come back the following year. So um, so I decided to go to Medina. And how did your family <laughs> react to that? My family mm-hmm. were very encouraging, really, to be honest. You know, And that's the thing about it. You think about a 17-year-old young Pakistani, not a lot of families would have let their son go in a million years, you know what I mean? They would say, no chance, you're going. And I went, believe it or not, if you remember, the very first Gulf War when Saddam Hussein took over Kuwait. And I remember telling my head teacher at the time, Mr Morrison, I'm going to Saudi. He goes, no, don't go. He, he was like panicking and stuff like that. I'm like, no, no, sir, it'll be fine, blah, blah, blah. I got into this and said, aye, but be careful, be careful and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but nevertheless, I decided to go and um, we went, I went. And at the time, um, also thankfully at the time, there was um, Ubaidur Rahman, um, Tufay Hussain, Imam Tufay Hussain, Shahzab's son, oldest son, he was studying there at the time. This was... He was in his, obviously going for his second year. He'd been there the year before, so he was kind of a help as well. But when you get there, it's a whole different environment. I know love, people love to go there for Umrah and Hajj and all these other... That's wonderful, but to live there, it's a different... So tell us about that, game. because, I mean, what, <coughs> what were the first few days like? What, you know, you, you're 17, 18 from Glasgow. <laughs> You've landed in... I guess we all get visions of what it's like. As yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, don't get me wrong, but the, the university itself is outside the city. you got to remember that. If anyone's been to Medina, and if, you, if you've been to your ziyaras to Masjid Kublatain, the mosque with the two directions, it's just beyond that, further up. Um, so the university is just there, and it just... Beyond the university is the palaces for the royals, they're on top of this mountain. And they say that, yeah, whatever. But yeah, it's there. And so when I got there, it was very different. I mean, university life and the culture and the way things were and people. And the thing is, it's an international university. So you had people from all over the world, from South America to North America to Australia to obviously all every country in Africa, possibly, Russia, you know, Muslims from all over, China, all over. Which was great, don't get me wrong. I mean, my, my first roommate was Chinese Muslim and a Kenyan Muslim, right? So two continents, and you know, but great guys, Abdullah and Abdulaziz, I remember very well, great, great colleagues. But my first two weeks were, were hard, very, very hard. In fact, after two weeks, I phoned my mum, I'm not telling you, but I phoned my tears in my eyes, I want to come home. 
I said, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's just really difficult. What were you finding the most difficult? Thing? I don't know. It's just I wasn't settling in. Um, I just couldn't find the people and settled in. Settling in, um, couldn't get used to the place, the food, all these kind of things. I know it sounds thingy, but I, I, it was very difficult, you know. Um, and the studies, did the you? The studies were they I mean, hard? Two weeks was, were, yeah, no, it was, it was easier. And the studies were okay, but I don't know. It just wasn't settling. My heart wasn't settling then. I remember speaking to my mum on the phone, oh, mum, I want to come home. My mum, obviously, you know, they're soft on it, they were thinking. Then my dad grabbed the phone, and I was a heavy voice, like, Dad, um, okay, my tone changed. <laughs> he was like, I want to come home. He goes, no, you know, you're going to stay another two or three weeks, or maybe another, you know, stay another four weeks, see what happens, and then come home. And if it wasn't for my dad, I think I would have come home after. But after that two weeks, that two or three weeks, I got to meet some friends. One of my best friends was was a Californian Muslim, American Muslim, and my other one was Bolivian, Isa, and we just kind of gelled together. I don't know how where these guys were the first two weeks, but they were there. But we just didn't think it. But for some reason, after that, we just gelled together, and we were a force. We were a team there. You know what I mean? Because so, you were there for about four years. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. Did you stay in contact with some of these people? Yeah, I'm even still, now? still still in contact. Facebook's a wonderful thing, so you're still in contact with a lot of them. In fact. Um, in four years as well, I've met some very interesting people. I mean, uh, Yudal Maghrib founder uh, Muhammad Sharif. You know, he was one of my colleagues, but he was used to. He, he came a few years after I started. Mufti Mink as well. He was. He yeah. He was. He was there at the time as well. Because when he came to Glasgow, he said, "I recognise you," and I goes. I'm trying to recognise you, but I've seen your face, but I don't know where. He goes, "Yeah, you've seen me in Medina," and he recognised me because you're the little guy with a bike. Little yeah. little guy <laughs> with the bike because what had happened was that um, the buses in Medina got went on strike with the buses meaning taking us to from the university to the Haram to Medina to the mosque and they went on strike and that was it. I panicked I thought how the heck I, every day I had to go to the Provost Mosque that was my sanity otherwise so I'd you, go so insane you'd go to your studies and go to yeah, the go, Provost the Mosque the studies were from like 7 in the morning to 1 in the afternoon and that was you for the rest of the day so you'd have lunch, have a wee nap, and then then head off. And then the buses went on strike. Then I I I bought a bike. I just couldn't think. And I used to cycle a good, it's a good like ten miles to and back. Probably more, about twelve miles to and back. But I just couldn't. Otherwise, I'd go insane. And that kept me sane. Um, and I used to use that bike everywhere. And that's why he remembers me. He goes, "You're that little guy in that wee <laughs> I used to whiz about." I goes, yeah, "That was me." And so, um, yeah. I mean, Medina obviously has a special place for everyone's heart. Absolutely, absolutely. But living there is actually, you know, many people have that dream and you did that, you know. Yeah. For I mean, one of the things and one of the things that I mentioned uh, is that one of the verses in the Quran that really impacted me as well was وَرَفَعْنَا لَكَ ذِكْرَكْ That indeed we've raised you in remembrance, meaning of the Prophet And if you wanted to find me in the Prophet's mosque, there was one spit, bit I always used to sit. That was my spot and it was just... You've you've been to the Prophet's Mosque, I'm sure. You know yep. the inside where they open the opening, but the umbrellas are now the fancy That's umbrellas. Right, yep. That's where I used to sit under yeah. there all the time. That was my bit. And used to be an uncleji from Pakistan. I work. He used to sit next to me. Yeah. We used to we got on really well. We, you know, used to take me for iftar and things like that. We used to go for a coffee and things. Really nice. But that was my spot, and I had to, that's that was where I you know you earth yourself. You just kind of breathe. So I mean. If we, <laughs> Some places are obviously linked with some abiding memories. Yeah. So if you close your eyes, is that where you? Oh yeah. What you think that court? Yeah. Do you know which whenever, pillar? Whenever, whenever, whenever I go back for Umrah or Hajj, a certain pillar. I have to go place. there. I know that exact pillar, that place. Gosh. That spot. That's just there. 
you know, I, I, you know, I, I knew we knew the cleaners who were around about that area and what cleaner was on what day and that, and it was crazy. Don't ask, it's kind of sad, I don't know, yeah. but it was just one of those things. Yeah. That was my space. And I remember really once you were travelling to England for an event mm-hmm. and uh, someone, someone put a gnat on and had Medina and I could see the tears were sort of Oft. coming in your eyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I guess for you it has that even yeah, more absolutely. special... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing about it. I mean, it's... If it wasn't for the Prophet's Mosque in that beautiful city, there wouldn't be no reason for me to stay there, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. And you mentioned that you, I remember you telling us stories about how you guys would chill at, when you, at weekends and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, surfing yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that. So tell us a bit about the downtime. Uh, yeah, the downtime. What can I tell you? What can I not oh, tell you? You? <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful. No, um, no, downtime was good because it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot. We used to get downtime now and then. And we used to go off to the Red Sea, for example, go into the sea, that kind of stuff. Or, believe it or not, there was a pool table in the, in the city. There was one, one, one cafe that had a pool table, and that was like a luxury. I know it sounds very sad, but that was a luxury we never had. Um, so we used to go there sometimes and, and just chill and play there. And then just in my final year, there was a, a, a would you call them, a, a bowling alley that opened up. That was like, wow, bowling alley. So we went there a few times to chill out in downtime and stuff as well. What we used to do is take, like, for example, a lot of the new students when they used to come, they used to be, because we've been through that, we know how nervous they are and things like that. So we used to take them to these kind of places to say, look, relax, you know, we're here as well. If you need any help, let us know, whatever, you know, settle you in and that kind of thing. So whenever there was any, like, a European or um, American students who came, then we would do that with them and chill out. And... Um, <coughs> When you left, was that just the end of your studies, or did you have enough? Yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of, both. It was a, it was a junction where I could kind of just say, right, okay, enough is enough, and look at something else, and that's where I did start looking because I would find it very difficult because the education was okay. What happened is that the year before we went into the actual faculties, the after finishing the language program. Is that they, the Saudi, the the, the, the Medina University, let, you know, basically got rid of all the foreign teachers. So every teacher in the university was now Saudi, whereas before it was, you know, you had Syrian teachers, you had Sudanese teachers, you had Iraqi teachers, you had teachers from all different. And I love that variety is different teachers, different thing. But then they all become kind of one nationality and the way they taught wasn't, you know, wasn't settling. Not only that, <coughs> the students about us, they, they as well, I didn't like the way they were speaking and some of the things they were saying and doing and I just felt uncomfortable. Um, and one or two of my friends had left, one of the, the Californian friend I've spoken about, he left. I thought, you can't leave me here, you know, what are you doing? And then the Bolivian friend, he he stayed on, I've got to give it to him, but we were the only two that was left, like, from the, the, the original team. And um, I said, look, I need to start looking somewhere else as well. And that's when, believe it or not, a French student came over. Um, I even remember him, Nabil, he came over and he said, look, there's, a, there's an institute open up in France. Why didn't you give it a go? So I thought, OK, France of all places. So that's what I did. Then I moved to France because someone said... Get to France. <laughs> no. Yeah. So we'll come on to that, but yeah, take, sure, take us sure. to your next item that you're going to take a look yeah. at. Yeah, one of the other items I think is undoubtedly Surah Khlas. When I was, you know, one of the things that you'll find and you probably know is that nowadays people are always speaking about aqidah, belief, tawheed, and various other things. And there's many different interpretations of it. I get it. There's many different interpretations of it. And you study it and you learn it as you go along. But these people have this notion is that my Aikida is right and yours is not, and that kind of idea. 
And I remember one of my teachers, even this was in Saudi, believe it or not, one of the teachers was saying that if you learn your surah ikhlas, you've got all the aqidah in the world. You know, if you look at that surah, how pure it is, and that's what it is, ikhlas means purity. How pure that surah is, you would understand what who Allah is. And true enough, you know, we make things overcomplicated. It's that thing idea of making things complicated for people when we can actually simplify it. You know, if he knows Allah is one, if he knows he is unique, he knows that he's self-sufficient. He knows that there's nothing comparable, compa- comparable to Allah. It's so quite it's encapsulates yeah, so much absolutely, in such a absolutely. short That's just the briefing. So, yeah. so many other things encapsulates as well. Because people used to fight over who's belief in... We used to have a group of brothers going around testing people's aqidah. You know, asking questions like, where is God? Where is Allah? You know, does Allah have a hand? What is it like? You know, you know like... You know, yeah. why, why are you making life difficult for people? And at that, you know, it's not right. You're supposed to make things simple and easy for people to understand. So then it sounds like you still had that yearning for knowledge and then that, that's, yeah. that's when you moved to France. Yeah, I moved to France. For, for another yeah. four years. For another four years. So then you went to fr- France in about 1994. Um, tell us a bit about what that was like then. That was a whole different kettle of fish. You know, as I say, a whole different... I mean, from going to a university... In the Middle East, Islamic University, we're all guys, you know, you were restricted from what you could do, movement, where you could go. I'll give you another story, for example, when I was in Medina, and in the, in the, we used to go home every year in the summer, but you had winter holidays, um, and you were you were allowed to travel, but they didn't really encourage you to go to neighbouring countries. So they would give you a passport, you had to give your passport in, they would give you a, a, an ID card. So whenever you travel, you have to go obviously collect your passport. So when I collected my passport, the first time I went to Egypt, because Javed, as I mentioned, he was in Egypt studying at the time. So I went to see him. When I returned my passport, they saw the Egyptian thing. He said, we said to you, don't go to these kind of neighbouring countries. And I was like, why are they telling us that? You know, what's their problem? Um, and then the following winter, <laughs> they, they came again. I said, can I get my passport? They go, where are you travelling to? Where are you going? I'm just going home. I'm just going home. I'm going to go home. But I didn't, I went to Jordan. Because <laughs> I was trying to go to Palestine at the time. I was trying to go to Palestine. So myself, and this is my Bolivian friend. He's Palestinian originally, but he lives in Bolivia. And there was another friend from Argentina. He, we all, we decided to go to Jordan and to, into Palestine. But unfortunately, Jordan was fine. But going into Palestine didn't happen, unfortunately. So I got kicked out there. But that's another story. Um, but yeah. So, you know, it was very restricted that way, whereas in France you could go anywhere you want, do whatever you want, so that whole liberal or that openness wasn't there, and to have that at the university was amazing. Then on top of that, there was there was, there was a mixed class of those sisters at the back, and I'd never seen sisters in my life before <laughs> studying. So there was a very, I don't say strange, but if somebody from coming from that background to this, it was a very strange thing. And I remember when I went into the first time, got to, Chate- got to France, and um, and this place is rural. This is in the middle of a village. In fact, it's not even a village. Off a village, you have to get a bus from the. You go. You fly. From, you fly into Paris. Paris to get a train to Nevers. From Nevers, you have to get a bus to <coughs> Chateau And from Chateau you get a lift. You have to phone up the uni to come and get you. I missed the bus at Nevers. I was homeless for the night. I didn't know what to do. Really? So I slept in the open. Um, this was what, your first time there? This was my first time there because I didn't know what was happening. I missed the bus and I'm thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I phoned them up and said, look, you just have to get a hotel or something. And in France, I don't speak a word yeah. of French. So I thought, you know what? It was like 12 o'clock. I said, I've roughed out before, man. I can do this. 
So I did, you know, I just slipped in, in, the, in, in somewhere. I don't know where it was, just in the back alley. Was that not quite like a frightening that. experience? No, I mean, country, I don't know. Like it was nice weather, I thought it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was warm and that. I thought, you know, I could just hang out here. Man, no, it was quite safe, you know, quiet town and everything else. So I just did that and got the first bus in. And when I arrived in Chattis, you know, when I arrived in the Institute, I walked into my class and they were speaking French. And I had my head, man, I'm thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I've come to a college that they're teaching French. And I thought, no, this can't be. What have I done? So what had happened, I don't know, thankfully, an hour later, that was a French lesson I walked into. <laughs> so they actually teach French literature, which is a good thing, I guess, as well as Islamic studies, they've got French literature as well. So it's heavy-end French language. So obviously I had no idea what they're talking about. So I'm sitting there looking at these faces, new people, and they're looking at me like, who's he? And all this, that, and other. And I'm sitting there, no French. I'm like, what's going on? And thankfully, everybody came round and started speaking Arabic. And I thought, alhamdulillah, man. And Thank God. And those years there, did, I mean, did you feel, did you fit in more in those four years? Yes. Did you actually I, in fact, probably I spoke more Arabic in France than I did in Medina as well. Because in Medina, what the, what the issue was is that because you hung around with your European and American friends or English-speaking friends, you just spoke English, you didn't speak much Arabic. And when you went to Medina, everybody spoke Urdu or Punjabi anyway or something. So you would speak rarely except in class. But here I had to speak, I had to speak French, which was great in a way that, you know, I couldn't communicate in any other language but Arabic, so it was totally Arabic for me. So, so and particularly, in, this is sort of the mid-90s, mm-hmm. isn't it? And um, there's been a lot discussed about, you know, Muslims in Europe or mm. European Islam. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that something that was always present in terms very of much a very so. different I mean, flavour of Islam? Well, France as well, at that time, obviously, the, the Front National was getting, was a lot of popularity was building for them then as well. And so when I used to say I used to study in France, Islamic studies in France, people were like, what? Of all places in Europe, France, you know, because you've got Le Pen and all these guys standing up talking about immigration and Muslims and everything else. That was happening way back then. And I remember one time our, our sign, our road sign got vandalised as well with uh, NF written on it, FN, Front National, by the way, sorry, British, but you get the idea. So um, all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, these guys are thinking, but alhamdulillah, nevertheless, we were still quite safe and no issues. And the good thing about the call, the university or the institute was that they were doing a lot of work in the village. So they had a lot of community based work as well. So, they, you know, people used to come and go from the village, you know, they were quite friendly. They knew us and we used to go shopping sometimes in the supermarket there and people knew who we were and stuff like that we were from. And I, I've heard that you were a bit oh, of a ringleader. Uh, in in France, uh, tell us a bit about. I don't know if been been a ringleader, but uh, uh, <laughs> I guess I've just got a knack with people. I guess <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think I think with myself, you know, anybody used to come. Obviously, I used to welcome them, and and because I said I, I'd been through Medina, I know how tough it is for someone to come in. And here it wasn't as tough. I settled in right away. This because this was bliss for me. Right, this was was easy. But even for someone not done it first, not done it before, it's kind of difficult. So, whenever used to anyone used to come in, I used to take them in and welcome them and show them around, particularly the UK sort of students. And um, you know, a lot of young young brothers, for example, Sheikh Amr came through there as well. Because I remember young Amr at the time, he was at Strathclyde University. And he phoned me up. He said, "Can I come to France with you?" And I thought, who are you? I don't even know who you are. First of all, right? He goes, this is who I am. This is what I'm finished. Just finishing law. Can I come? I thought, of course you can come. Do what you want. He came. Um, Jugo Rahman came. Were they there for they, like they, a year they, or they, so? They, 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 they did the full thing. They did the full program as well. Alhamdulillah. So we did the Arabic and they did the Islamic studies and things like that as well. And I remember I used to teach Amar Arabic as well. 
And it was the opposite, obviously. <laughs> um, but I used to teach Amr, uh, Sheikh Amr Arabic as well, interestingly enough, yeah. And um, you used to challenge the teachers sometimes, and then or, or the system, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, challenges, I don't know where you're getting this from, my man, but um, challenge, I don't know if it challenges the word, it's just that sometimes what would happen is that, you know, I'd like to get into lively debates. One of her teachers, uh, Saad Tahar, um, fantastic teacher, um, graduated from the same institute as Sheikh Rudwan in, in, in Damascus, and he was really lively. And I loved him, his charisma and things like that, the way he spoke. And sometimes you go into a class and, it, you know, the next teacher would be just like, oh. So I used to like liven things up a bit because I was just so high off coming off this teacher. So I used to liven things up a bit and people liked that. And have you always been something... Sorry, yeah, so I think I think that, that kept me going as well. But at the same time, I mean, don't get me wrong, there were great teachers, fantastic teachers there. We had... For example, Dr. Tariq Ramadan, everyone knows he taught us philosophy, for example, Islamic philosophy, didn't understand a word he said to us, but nevertheless, we did it in a past, I don't know how, but you get the idea, you know, we've had a lot of interesting people come through there as well, alhamdulillah. And has there always been an element um, of you that sort of likes to challenge the status quo, shake things up, whether, <laughs> whether it's in Medina and sort of really... Yeah, I think, I think if I'm not stimulated, if not challenged, I'm not, you know, I don't find, I, I, I will not... Stay with but, it. But you also but like to hold others to account. I, 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 I hold myself account before I hold others to account. Yeah, true enough. Um, because I think sometimes when we do things and you know we don't we don't take heed, we don't we don't account for that what we've said or done, and sometimes you need to be challenged for that. And I think you know, and as I said, I challenge myself at that as well, and I challenge others at that, saying you know what what do you mean by that? what you're trying to say you know and, and it's not not in a way that I want to in any way put you down I want to understand honestly hand in heart I want to understand where you're coming from so maybe I get a better understanding you know like Imam Shafi used to say that you know I used to learn from the, the, the street cleaner you know he learned from everybody in some way or another that you know opens you up Tell us about the next item, Shafi. Yeah, one of the other things I think, and in, in, in this is obviously important to me, I think, is about the, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, if anyone has an atom's weight of arrogance in their heart, will never smell the fragrance of paradise. And I think, you know, that incides with a lo- along with another hadith that, you know, I meant, you know, we know about the hadith, because about the first three people that will be dragged into hellfire, and one of them is, you know, the scholar and the hafiz and the, the, the rich man because their intentions or why they were in that position because you know in no arrogant way we, you knew that when you came back with so much knowledge so much understanding that Allah's blessed you with you had you want to have some degree of responsibility in your community and our teachers used to remind us that obviously you're going back home people are going to ask you questions it's how you do and how you work in your community and that is we're human we can you know we're very easily in a time to do you know we get arrogant we fall into our own whims and think yeah this is good I feel good and that you can't do you know and, and, and one, of, one of the things I always remind myself was like you know the great companions like Abu Bakr radiallahu an, very simple he was the best pe- you know after the Prophet sallallahu was Abu Bakr there's no doubt but yet he was you know there was no you know, the Prophet said, let his thob flow because there's no arrogance in Abu Bakr. You know, you wish you were at that level some way and you can only hope that, you know. And I think when, as I said, for any of us who come back or understanding, you know, you're in a position of authority or responsibility, you know, you can't let that go. You can't let that happen. You just can't, you know. 
and 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 you know, as I said, it's just it's frightening. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it's scary. You know, I don't think it's it's a bless. It's something to be proud of. It's very scary. And that sense of responsibility, I guess, having studied for about eight years yeah. abroad. Um, when you came back, I mean, was there an expectation that you know you'd become an imam or get involved? Or was it? I mean, what, were you, what did you think you were going to do when you came know, back? I don't know really. See, I don't know what I was going to do because I tell you how I came back. I finished. I finished. I finished in France, and uh, my mum phoned me, or I phoned my mum. I think. And his mum, I finished. She goes, "Take a car, Raja. We're going to Pakistan." So obviously well, you, you weren't that, married at that yeah, point. Yeah, I wasn't married at that point. So obviously that means one thing, and that when you're 25, finished from uni, there's only really one thing that means when you're going to Pakistan. So you come home, we're going to Pakistan. And I thought, you know what, alhamdulillah, let's go. So what was that? You journey know, like? that was that. It was great because I mean we went to Umrah on the way to Pakistan, so it was good. That, you know, it was one of my du'as that you know I used to go to the haram. That hopefully my mum comes because I did try when I was there. Mum tried to come over a few times, but things didn't phase out. But obviously this time I had the opportunity to take my mum to Umrah and I organised it in the best way I could so that she was comfortable as possible and she loved it. Um, I did lose her at one point. Really? <laughs> but we found her, alhamdulillah. We went to that. But yeah, but alhamdulillah, that was great. That was experience in itself. And then obviously when I went to Pakistan, um, my mum, my uh, obviously, you know, I, I, I didn't know who I was getting. Honestly, I, I hadn't seen her. I haven't spoken to her. My wife had nothing at all. Uh, there was a picture of her, but there was like uh, vaguely sitting in the background. I couldn't see what she looked like properly. And uh, and my mum asked, "Do you want to get married?" And I thought, "I'm 25. You know what? Mum's allowed me to do live my life the way I've wanted. I've travelled the world, well, a good part of it. You know, which other 17 year old to 25 year old young man kids has had those opportunities that I've had? Like, I, you know, you can't, you know, you can't write a book about some of the things that I've been through and seen. So I said, at least I owe this to my mother. But the thing is, I knew my father-in-law. I knew him because he was in Saudi at the time working. So we did Umrah and Hajj a couple of times together. So from his nature and his the way he was, he was such a sound guy in terms of his character and everything. I thought, you know what, his father's like that. Hopefully his daughter will be like that as well. And Alhamdulillah wasn't wrong. Alhamdulillah, you know. How many so years married oh, now? I was married in 98, so what's it? Almost 20 years now. Yeah, 19 years, 20 years. It's quite a, quite a, I guess it's quite a big step, isn't it? it is, Especially now, it nowadays is, when you have the expectation is, yeah. of meeting them and getting yeah. to know them. And I mean, I think it's sort of that generation, you still, you know, still kind of got that kind of idea sort of thing. But as I said... Um, it worked yeah, for you. It worked for me, alhamdulillah. So tell us about your next item, Shaka. Yeah, my next item, um, again, kind of related to what we're speaking about, the whole thing about responsibility. And one of the hadiths that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned about um, the chief of the people is the servant of them, meaning that whatever position, you could be, have a grand position or whatever position in society that you have, you're still there to serve the people. That's your goal. You know, you're not there to sit in a throne or a chair or in a position of power and think, you know, people are answerable to me or I don't have to engage with people, I'll leave that. No, you have to engage with the people. And again, if you look to the example of the Prophet ﷺ, that was a prophet. There's no greater position than that in ever. But he, what was he amongst the people? He was amongst the young, the old, the sick, the Muslims, the non-Muslims, the Jews, the Christians. He was amongst all those people, engaging with them. He knew his community whenever whenever anyone was absent from his congregation, he'd ask of them, you know. But when we get into a position of power, we're like quite comfortable there. And we feel that we don't have to communicate or engage. We can get other people. No, you've got to do it yourself. 
And I think that's one of the things that I'm very happy about, that, you know, I'm able to communicate with people in that I like to, you know, when, when there's an event, I like to sit with people. I don't like to sit in the stage or go up there or, you know, that's not, it's not settles me. You know. And this sense of leadership and responsibility, I mean, did that come at quite an early age? Because you, you're a head boy at I your think school. And I was head boy, man. That was a shock. <laughs> I don't know how I got How'd that. that That's because Axie A was the first one. Everybody <laughs> sticked it. Yeah, yeah. So um, there must have been signs of leadership. Or yeah, people, I mean, you're a people person even back yeah, then. Yeah, even then. I mean, I t- let you into another secret. I don't know if I mentioned it here. I have mentioned actually one of the one of the books that I first read and bought. And I was recommended this book, believe it or not, was How to, Friends and, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And I would recommend that to other people to read as well. It's a fascinating book. Um, and when you read it, all it described was a character, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi I was thinking, man, Mr. Dale Carnegie, you let, you, you've read a bunch of hadiths of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi character and made that a book. That's what you've done, you know, literally. Um, but I believe it was it was one of one of our one of our, one of my first teachers Abu Sundas who recommended it to us um, to read that book and I think that I learned a lot from that book as well and how to engage and speak to people and you know and obviously carrying that sort of leadership I don't like to say leadership but that duty of responsibility and how important it is and how it should be because um, we're answerable for it that's that's the bottom line in terms of being in that position or that in 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 in, in that role. And um, you talked a bit about obviously your marriage, and um, you know, you've, you, Masha, you've got children. And more recently, I guess a few years ago, you had a daughter, and she was very unwell for yeah, quite, yeah, a, quite yeah, a while. And yeah. I know that was quite a really difficult time for it you was, and the whole family. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that it was touch and go whether she was yeah, going to pull yeah, through. Yeah. She's, you know, she's, she's with, us, with us today. I mean, how yeah. did you cope with that whole period? Because that must have just um, taken over your whole life. It did. It? it did. I mean, even at, even at work, you know, I had to let them know what was going on because, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, myself and my wife, we sat down, we spoke about it, you know, because the worst thing is to put hold it inside and not speak about it. And I said, look, we need to sit down and talk about this and share our feelings and how we're feeling about this. And, um, you know, it was very difficult. And obviously it's more difficult for the mother rather than for myself. And I remember when, when my wife gave birth to Sarah at the time, you know, there was basically no hope even at that point. And the doctor was saying, look, you know, we're not concerned about the baby, I'm concerned about mum's health, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, okay. So we even at that point thought, you know, you know, this is a gift from Allah. We might see it, we might not, you know, whatever way, alhamdulillah. Because you've got to remove, you know, my oldest daughter is 16. And this, this is our first child after 14, 15 years. We've been trying for a long time, but just one of those things that Allah wills, whatever He wills. And so this was, you know, we were like, oh, subhanAllah, you know, when my wife was expecting, we were so happy and everything else. We were thinking, second child at last, we made so much dua that Allah's answered it. But it didn't come easy because <laughs> she was born 15 weeks premature. So at that, it was a very big challenge. But, you know, we pulled through, I think, because obviously we family around about us as well. Plus, we had a good, you know, friends and family other people around about us making lots of dua as well and and I think you know as I said the way we looked at it is that she doesn't it's not our imana yet she still belongs to Allah whatever she's coming to this world yeah you know but however she's she's still an imana from Allah whatever Allah decides we leave it to him um but that aside obviously you're a parent you still mm-hmm. have those emotions that go through you so you know Sarah at times you know for example we we'd get a call in the middle of the night from the hospital you better come in 
And you get that call, you're like, you know, my wife's in tears already before we can get into the car to get to the hospital. She's in tears. Like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. You have to go. We have to go together. You know, we get there. And it happened two occasions, I remember very, very clearly. And somehow the doctors managed to revive her again. Subhanallah. I don't know how, but I remember one doctor, a German doctor, Dr. Heinz. I remember because of Heinz Wien, but <laughs> Dr. Heinz, lovely guy. You know, I hugged him. I literally hugged the guy and says, thank you so much. You know, um, and then the second time was another doctor. He'd left shift, but, you know, I just thank nurses so much for what they did. But ultimately, we know as in our iman that this is Allah's way of dealing with it. I mean, Sarah came to a point when only 10% of her lungs were actually working because you probably know more than I do, but the lungs are the last organs that kind of develop in a baby. So she, because she was so premature, they weren't fully developed. So it was a lot of breathing issues. Then she had issues with her with her food, with eating, she had a stoma bag and various other things. So she went through, subhanAllah, everything and anything, you know, laser eye surgery for the sake of that age, all this kind of thing. You're like, wow. Um, and as I said, she's with us today. But as I said, it's the du'as of friends and family. And, and, and you know, one of the other things is having hope. I know it sounds that kind of cheesy thing, but really having hope in Allah that, you know, he'll, 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 he, whatever he decides, it will come, it will come forth. Because some people say, oh, it's, it's at times like this where people really question their faith yeah. because it's such a, distra- you know, a naturally yeah. distressing and emotionally turbulent time. Yeah. And I guess it, for some people it pulls them closer to Allah, yeah. some people it, it makes them question everything. Yeah. For you, were there times when you thought, gosh, this is too hard, this is too hard, this, why, why, why is this happening to me or us? Not, not really. I think, I think for me, I think, um, and my wife, I think we, you know, as I said, Allah puts tests in everybody's life, and this was one for us. I think, in that, you know, that after so many years, Allah's blessed with a with a child, but it's not come easy. Mm. So, what do we do? Are we going to think? Are we going to turn to Allah? Or are we going to turn away from Him and start, you know, crying and wailing or whatever else? Or do we return to Allah? And I think every time we used to used to think, you know, whatever Allah wills, you know, whatever Allah wills, whatever, you know, and I used to remind my wife that, she used to remind me, because obviously you do have dips and things like that as well, but this is his thing, whatever he plans, you know, so that was that. And how long did that whole period go on she for was, till you're she was out nine, the wood? She was nine months in hospital after, Gosh. she never came home for nine months. That's and a long time. Uh, it's a long time, and at that time, as you talk about the Commonwealth, was the Commonwealth Games on at that time. So, between that, the Commonwealth Games and work and so, <laughs> it was like sometimes I used to go in the hospital at like two in the morning with my gear on, my Commonwealth stuff on, and the nurses would say, "Oh, what celebrity have you seen today? Who have you seen this?" I'm like, "No, I've not seen anything. I just want to see my daughter." So I used to sit there for hours, literally just in the hospital by myself. And Sarah just looking at her, you know, just thinking, you know, hopefully, inshallah, Allah will bring her through. And then you had another one after that. We had another one, <laughs> believe it or not. So it's like having twins almost a year apart, exactly, but it's like having twins, alhamdulillah. So tell us about your next item, show. My next item is um, a book I read a very long time ago. It was the autobiography of Malcolm X. I think it may be a lot of young people that can relate to that one. But however, it kind of struck home one particular um, quote of Malcolm X was about the one... Um, where he, he was on Hajj, this was the bit where it, things changed for him from sort of nation Islam to mainstream Islam, where he uh, lying under the night sky of Muzdalifah, and you can relate to that, anybody who's been to Hajj, he knows the night sky of Muzdalifah, it's just stars, that's all it is, apart from the exhaust and the cars and the hustle and bustle, but you get the idea, it's, it's, you have the quiet moment, you can sit and look up, and I've had them a few times, so when I used, whenever I used to look up, 
I always used to think about Malcolm X that this was a moment that he said, you know, um, lying under the stars, I realised that everyone snores in the same language. We're all same. You know, what's the need of race being, you know, racism, racism or xenophobic or whatever, you know, we're all equal. That's the biggest thing that Malcolm X, you know, his latter life at least did and propagated that we're all equal. It doesn't matter who we are. Because sometimes I see people, and again, through my travels, I've seen some great stuff and I've seen some, so, some not so nice stuff as well, the way some people have been treated because of who they are or where they're from or for what language they speak or whatever. And you think, you know, we don't have time for this, unfortunately. You know, and, and, and unfortunately, the majority of time used to happen in some Muslim countries, which was really difficult to swallow. Um, uh, you know, but this kind of quote and these kind of things used to bring me back thinking, you know, we're all the same. It doesn't matter what colour. We should never look at the colour of the skin. We should never judge anyone, you know. And that's one of the things I think that I've learned as well over time is being non-judgmental. Don't go in and, you know, have, you know, preconceptions or prejudge someone before you even meet them because of the way they look or they've got a tattoo or they've got an earring in their ear or she's wearing a miniskirt, she's got no hijab on. Who, who gives you the God-given right to judge that person? I mean, I little story, man, if you don't mind. But, you know, I was, when I used to travel back and forth from France, from Paris, I remember one time I was, um, you know, Chat, uh, Charles de Gaulle's the airport. He's got a little mosque inside it. And I remember one time it was really early for the for the, for my flight, and I prayed my prayer, and I, and I thought I'd just lie down for two minutes. So I lay down, sleeping, lying, lying on the floor, just kind of closing my eyes, and all of a sudden two girls walk in. And, and I thought, oh, God. And it's not a big room. It's a small room, right? And there's not a lot of space. And I'm thinking, right, okay, I'll just pretend I'm sleeping. I'll keep looking the other way, and I won't look their direction. But they, they prayed their prayers and everything else and, you know, I kind of just, I thought, you know, they're reading them as well, just kind of move a wee bit out of the way, at least. So I got moved out of the way and they kind of prayed their prayers and, and, and then they got up and they, they just started chatting because they were there and I started talking to them and they were they were stewardesses on the Air France and they were Muslim, obviously, praying. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just travelling from Scotland. Oh, that's lovely, blah, 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 you have a wee chat and stuff. And they said, we've got to go. I thought, that's fine. You know, okay, obviously, you've got to catch a flight. You've got to do your job. And what happened is they got up and they took their abayas off. And they were wearing, like, you know, really short skirts and dressed, you know, sort of the stewardess kind of clothes. And I'm thinking, they're going to walk out there. And a hundred people are going to judge them and say, look at those women. A hundred people didn't pray their asr. There's a lot of Muslims in that terminal that didn't pray their asr, I can guarantee you. But they at least came in, did their asr and went back to their job. How, who am I? Again, it's, you know, those kind of things you learn from, you think, who am I to judge these people? To anybody, you know what I mean? I can't do that. So it's between the people and Allah. Uh, absolutely. So with everything that you've been through, Shokat, I mean, especially at quite a young age, I mean, do you sometimes pinch yourself in terms of all the experiences that you've had? Very much so. Um, very much so. I think, you know, I think, you know, alhamdulillah, not a lot of people have been in my situation in terms of having opportunities to meet people, engage with people of different walks of life. And you experience things and you learn things that you can never learn off a book. You can learn, never learn from someone saying it to you a hundred times. You just learn it yourself. You go through the good times, you go through some really difficult times. And that's what makes, you know, the, 
say the metal of a man that's what makes him um, or breaks him sort of thing and I think all that experience that I've had or that travel that opportunity I've had you know I guess has made me fairly who I'm at <laughs> who, who, who I am today um, um, I'm not saying I'm the, the best of people but you know alhamdulillah Allah's given me that opportunity to think and be able to kind of understand and kind of do the right thing you know um, because one of the things that you do you know it's that thing about having the knowledge but it's applying the knowledge that wisdom and that know-how I think is very important and that's something you experience through life's experiences and you mentioned obviously you've been through various difficult times mm-hmm. in your life and um, a number of years ago your your mother passed away yeah they yeah. grant her the high I mean, I mean how is that I mean it must, it's traumatic for any yeah family. I mean my mum was a year before she passed away she went to Hajj and I think she never, she never recovered from Hajj. She never physically, because Mama had asthma. She was really poor in health. Did you go to Hajj? It was my brother? younger brother. He, he was, he was fortunate to take my mum to Hajj at the time. Um, and even when she was in Hajj, she got really ill there. Um, but nevertheless, she managed to struggle to do it, and she managed to come home. And as I said, she never really recovered from that moment, that time she was in Hajj, um, and. Uh, you know, we used to take her back and forward to the hospital and, you know, she hated to go to, she hated the hospital. She just didn't want to stay there. You know, I'm fighting with us, like, take me home. I don't care what happens, take me home. So we used to bring her home and stuff like that. And, you know, it's it's, it's the worst thing to happen when you get that phone call. I remember I was, I was out and about and um, my brother phoned me and he says, come home, it's mum. And as soon as, he, I know my brother, you know the tone of the voice, as soon as he said that, you know, I just ran home, uh, and, and and unfortunately, by the time I got home, my mum, she had passed away. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to kind of say, mm-hmm. or see her, and you know, and, and that's why sometimes I emphasise to young people, don't let that opportunity go. You know, regardless, you take it granted your mum's there, but one day she's not going to be there, and especially that moment that they go, you want to be there, or you at least want to say a kind of. It's not say a goodbye, but you get what I'm saying. You want to kind of be there for them, and unfortunately, that's one of my low points. I said I wasn't there. Um, it's, it's one of those things, I guess. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't avoid, you know. And when you were abroad, had you often worried about getting a phone call? And yeah, I mean, my mum obviously, as I said, she she's been asthmatic for a number of years, um, and if anyone knows mum, she was very feeble, very very weak. So anything, a small cold or a flu, would just knock her out. So, you know, I would worry about her when I was overseas and stuff like that. And that was, again, one of the reasons when I came home and I thought, you know, my mum wants me to get married. I better get married for the sake of my mum as well. You know, she's done all this for me. This is one of the things that I need to do for her, at least, and make her happy. And she was over the moon, you know, obviously. So I'm pleased at that. And it's fair to say, look, you you know, I think certainly from my perspective and other people's perspective, you know, certainly... You know, you're a real pillar of the community and, and you help a lot of people, etc. Um, did your mum sort of ever... Do you think she was proud of you? Did she ever say... Because I guess yeah. for, for us, a lot of us, obviously, you know, you're a bit of a trailblazer having studied abroad and the thumb yeah. Do, what was I your guess. mum's take? I mean, did she? Do you think she was proud of you in terms of what no, you she, achieved? No, she was. I think she was. She was very proud of the fact that I'd, I'd done what I'd done um, and came back and served in the community. Because, as I said, my mum was the religious one in the family. So for me to go away to study Islamic studies and come back with that knowledge, obviously for her, it was like you know, Hamdulillah, one of my sons is 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 done something in terms of, you know. Uh, 
coming closer to the dean and, 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 and inviting other people to the dean as well, you know, because my mum was always involved, even to her, her, her old age, you know, talking about Al-Mizan, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm still involved with it is because I feel that this is a legacy my mum was involved in that I feel that I still have to be a part of, to be honest. So, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why I'm still there. And uh, any, involved in it. Any good that you've done over the years, you'll absolutely. be benefiting you know, from that. There's, really. there's not a day that without that I don't make a dua from my mum, absolutely. So tell us about your next item. My, my next item is um, verses, well, one verse particular of Surah Asr, the last verse about persevering for the truth, <coughs> patience and truth. And that's so important. Um, again, um, through difficult times, through not so difficult times as well, as I said, you know, this is one of the things that I, that thing about persevering with patience is very important because I think, you know, we all face challenges, we all face difficulties in, every, you know, in different ways, shapes and forms. But when I look to the example of the Prophet, peace be upon him, he didn't, you know, no one felt, no one had more difficult than the Prophet, peace be upon him, in terms of life challenges. And I think if he can show that patience, we can at least emulate to that some way or another. I mean, he didn't see his parents. He doesn't, you know, he vaguely remembers his mum. He buried most of his children in his lifetime, you know, except for one. So five, six of his children he buried in his lifetime, except for one. And all the difficulties and things else. But he was patient. And he was patient with people. Even the people who did what he did against him, he was still patient with those people. And I think for us, that's what we've got to learn. You know, sometimes we say, all right, the person's done this, we've got to not look at the prophet as your teacher, as your example, and see what he would have done in that situation. Um, as well as being patient, that's the truth. It just fits in mm -hmm. with it, because that is the truth, the way the prophet led that example. And I think for us, we've got to side with that. And that's important, even for me, I think you're talking about how being a bit of a rebel, yeah, being a rebel in the sense that, you know, I would want to know the truth. Yeah, I know who you are, and I will respect you, and I, 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 I you know, I, I'm with you. But let's realize the truth together. Maybe mm -hmm. that will help rather than just saying I know what the truth is. You don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's me. No, let's learn it together. Let's go together in this journey to learn what the truth is. Perhaps we can get there, and then we can work together. And along with, I guess, a lot of these challenges and difficult points in your life. There's the highs as well. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think one of the perhaps highs is the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, yeah. That was you know massive for the whole, the whole yeah, country. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. there was buzzing and yeah. stuff. And you got this really behind the scenes access. You you the, the honorary yeah, chaplain yeah. for the games, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, what was that whole experience? I mean, that I, 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 I got that call actually two years before the games, believe it or not. Because what had happened is that they the Commonwealth Games got in touch with the Glasgow University and says we we want your chaplains for the games. Because there was chaplains for all the different other faiths as well. So obviously, um, uh, Stuart, Reverend Stuart McCauley, you know, so he, he said no problem. So we sat a chat with all of us. They said, look, you guys up for it? You guys want to do this? So, yeah, of course. And um, I used to have meetings with them. And obviously, one of the things about the Commonwealth Games, you've got to remember, they fell in Ramadan, if you remember as well. So that was a big issue as well. So we had to advise them. I had to advise them about food, about stuff like that. Because they, they had to keep open the the cafeteria and so logistically you can understand it's quite a big big task for them so obviously you know we're talking about who's going to be fasting I says look they are, they are traveling so technically they might not have to fast and so forth um they might come with that dispensation saying that we don't have to fast and that's fine but however we've got to put things into place anyway just in case they are so we, you know i helped around that we, we had a mosque a prayer area as well 
Um, we did the Eid there, I led the Eid prayer at the Commonwealth Games, which is quite cool as well. Zubair Arabi helped me as well, so we were kind of both involved in that. So it was it was a good team and alhamdulillah, it was really enjoyable. We met some really interesting people from, you know, all the different Commonwealth countries. So that was a great, great experience. And I said, there was the additional factor of Sarah at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. So it was just so much going on. Yeah. And Stuart was a great help at the time. You know, he said, like, if you need to go away anytime to go or whatever else. So... He was he was a great. Help and do you get to see much of the games itself, or were you just uh, look, looking after that? Literally, because because of the timing and so I didn't really get going to any of the games. I had access to them, you know. So I, people would give me tickets, and we'd get tickets. But I was like, you know, I just can't. You know, I'm here to do this. Let me do this, and that was quite busy because Hamdan used to get a lot of people come in, athletes, and come on just to have a chat with you. You know, just sit and talk to you and things like that, and you, you were there for them, which was great. And. Um, you know you're you're very busy. You're you're always in demand. You're always busy with stuff, mashallah, which is really my wife. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, I mean, how do you like to relax? How what's you when you oh. when you got downtime? What do you do? What what is hits your button when you just need to get away from it or do something else? What do you do to um, make well, you laugh and chill? Laugh and chill. Well, uh, this, I like to hang around with some of the brothers, as you know. <laughs> also, um, I love the hill. I love outdoors. I love hill walking. You know, the guys from Boots and Beards and the rest of them. You know, I've come back to that because a while back, even before I went to Saudi, I used to do a lot of hill walking with with some friends. <coughs> and even when I went to Saudi, I used to go hill walking, not into the hills any, anyway. Any hills there? The, well, Medina's full of mountains round about, yeah, surrounding. Um, and we, I used to, I mean, there used to be times where I used to go alone, which was really scary because we used to have this mountain just outside Medina, the university called Jabal Jinn, the mountain of Jinn. I don't know if it was, but somebody <laughs> came up with that name. I don't know if it really was, but I used to go up there myself a lot of times because he just wants to get away. Yeah. It was that thing about just getting away, and I think that for me is. Really grounding myself, being with nature, that I just can't, it's nothing, it's nothing better than that for me. I just, that's my downtime. And so, as we um, send you on this desert island shock, yes, you'll be alone. Yes, how do you think you'll cope with that solitude? Oh, I'll manage, <laughs> I will manage. You know, solitude is something that I, I really want sometimes as well. Um, and I think it's great to have that um, in relation to. It's been away from things because you said it's such a busy life. You want to kind of take a step back from it all and sit back and think, you know, do you know, reflect a chance to kind of take you away from all that because that's the thing about you know, uh, for me, I think in some ways being away from home and the universe that's a desert island for me as well in the technical term sort of thing in the sense that when you come away from Glasgow, you have a different perspective from what's happening in the city. Um, you know, you think you know we could do this. We could, you know, you have a different look in things. And when you come back, you know, you have you, you're you're fresh. You want to see what you can do and fit in and what you can change and things as well. So, being on a desert island is absolutely fine for me. Absolutely fine. And you can take a book with you apart from the Quran. Yeah, Yalom Medina is the same. Reviving the Islamic Sciences. I'd love to take that book and sit and read the six volumes and just no one disturb <laughs> me, man. That's it, just there, and that would be great. And uh, you can take a luxury item. A luxury item. I'll struggle with this one. You know that this is quite hard. And you know, I'd I'd get drop my mobile for the first thing I would do. I'd drop it in the ocean if I had it. But you know, I wouldn't have anything. As I said, just pictures of my daughters. That would be it. That's my luxury in my life is having my girls. You know, it's a picture of them and just remembering them. Inshallah.
Well, Shokat, thank you so much for you, spending time um, and sharing your uh, Desert Island Gems. It's been a real uh, pleasure and honour. Uh, may Allah well, well, continue to give you the strength, um, energy and uh, wisdom to you know, continue to serve the community. And, and for know, us all uh, and yourself, everyone, everyone, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems. Let us know what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mcmuslim.tv. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.